This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 98, June 4, 1985. First of all, I want to thank all of you who, during the w past week or two as I was traveling, expressed your appreciation for some of the recent Easy Chairs. I was particularly pleased that uh, many of you found the Easy Chair on Otto Scott's book on South Africa, The Other End of the Lifeboat, particularly interesting. Uh, we already knew that because so many of you ordered copies of the book based on our uh, taped uh, Easy Chair. We have more copies coming so that if you'd like a copy, we can provide them if you'll write to Ross House Books, P.O. Box 67, Vallecito, California, 95251. The price is eighteen ninety-five. Then I was interested that so many of you commented about remarks I made in one or two earlier easy chairs about houses, their nature, and uh, the fact that today we have the wrong attitude towards a house. Let me say a little more about that. Perhaps I shall be repeating myself a bit, but I trust you won't mind. What has happened to our idea of a house is that it has been increasingly conditioned by magazines and by furniture showrooms, so that every room of the house now, uh, if you were to meet the... Uh, <laughs> standards that some want us to set would be uh, furnished and kept as though it were a showroom. Now, this is a falsification of the whole idea of a house and a home. We must realize that uh, a house is a tool for living. In fact, we can say it is a factory for living. As such, the basic function of a house is not to be a showroom to impress people with, but a place where a family lives and enjoys life together. I've had more than a few comments that uh, going into some homes is a little difficult. You feel as though you're going to uh, pollute the place by walking across the carpet or sitting on a chair, and as though you're a carrier of germs into a kind of antiseptic and perfect uh, house. Remember, a house is a tool for living, a factory for family life. And as such, it sometimes will be uh, rather messy. It will look live in, lived in. It will not look like a showroom. On to something else, an interesting and rather pathetic book published recently is The Rise and Fall of Paradise by Elmer Bendiner, published by G.P. Putnam's Sons in 1983. The book is about the Moorish kingdom in Spain, and the author's perspective is that here there was a romantic and marvelous realm, 
where everything was sweetness and light, where there was a land that could be called paradise. In fact, he calls it the rise and fall of paradise, where there was tolerance and an acceptance, and the Islamic peoples lived in peace with everyone. Well, it's a beautiful little story, but it is fiction. It is an unhappy piece of fiction because the author should have known better be being a writer of history. The Moorish kingdom, first of all, was, and here the author is right, favorable to Jews. Because the Moors who invaded Spain did have the help of a number of Jewish soldiers. As a result, they gave two Jews a privileged position. There was good reason for the Jewish hostility to the Visigothic uh, monarchs. The Visigoths had come into Spain. Uh, well, they were barbarian tribes with a light veneer of Arianism, and they took the land, brutally killing Jews and Catholics. In time, they came to live somewhat at peace with the Catholics. But when the Moors came in, their attitude towards the Catholic population was hardly favorable. Moreover, they were by no means the light-hearted, romantic, and easy-going uh, people of, of paradise that Bendiner portrays. He gives a picture of scholars, rabbis, and others all living happily with troubadours, both Jewish and Arab, continually in the background. The fact is, the Arabs were puritanical. Uh, they strictly forbade uh, sex except uh, uh, on non-holy days, and they had a lot of holy days. They were fanatical about their faith in many, many areas. As a matter of fact, one of the most popular myths of our time is of the light-hearted, easy-going Islamic cultures of the Arabs and others as against the Christian church. The fact is the Inquisition was born in Islam centuries before it was ever brought into Christendom. It was brought in by Frederick II, the Hohenstaufen Emperor, in the Middle Ages, and Frederick was probably a secret Muslim. It was the uh, Caliph Wathik, uh, whose dates are 842 to 847, who actually instituted a permanent inquisition in Islam. As caliph, he had the power to do so, and he did. 
so that very early, long before, centuries before it ever came into the West, Islam had a very, very rigorous inquisition. It also had rules with regard to uh, non-Christians that made their life worthless. Any Muslim could at any time test the sharpness of his blade on the neck of a Christian or a non-Christian, and it was not murder. Moreover, very, very early, Islam developed the idea of the caliph's infallibility. And these ideas then crept into the West. Thus, we cannot uh, subscribe at all without falsifying history to the idea of Islamic tolerances against Christian intolerance. As a matter of fact, even at its worst, the West was far more tolerant than Islam was. On to something else. A little item from uh, a book that otherwise had uh, nothing in it. Dr. Penelope Rushenoff, Why Do I Think I Am Nothing Without a Man? An interesting title, but not a very interesting book. However, in the course of the book, she does make one point. She speaks about something she is often found as a psychologist in working with people, an attitude she calls, and it's a good name, future block. And this is how she describes it. I quote, the future, your plans for it, totally blocks out your absorption in the present, unquote. There are a great many people like that. That's not being future-oriented, because if you're future-oriented, you have a healthy regard for the present. What Dr. Rushenoff is dealing with in this description is the type of person who dreams about the future rather than works for it. Because if you're going to work for the future, you're going to be present and future-oriented. You're going to have a respect for the present because it's basic to the future you develop. But it's the kind of person who dreams about what their future is going to be and never lives in terms of the realities of the present. And as a result, they have what she calls a future block, an excellent term. Another important work, this one published in 1983, and I believe now out of print, Leo Steinberg, The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and in Modern Oblivion a Pantheon October book, published in New York. The book is very, very interesting. 
It's a study on the emphasis in late medieval and Renaissance art, Christian art, on Christ's sexuality. Suddenly, a great deal of emphasis began to appear in ecclesiastical art on the sexual organs of Jesus Christ. In pictures of the infant Jesus, the sexual organs are made central to the picture. In pictures of, uh, for example, the dead Christ being lowered from the cross. Again, you see the nude Christ with a considerable attention on his sexual organs. The first point that uh, Dr. Steinberg makes is that there is nothing accidental in Christian art over the centuries up to the beginnings of the modern era. Every little thing in the picture had a meaning. For example, when the uh, infant Jesus is portrayed in his mother's lap, with his hand on her chin. This has an ancient significance, very important in Catholic theology, namely that the infant Jesus designates his mother as having a special role in heaven and in relationship to the church. Thus, every position of the hand had a meaning that the artists and the viewers were thoroughly familiar with. Well, now to return to the uh, emphasis on Christ's sexuality. The key here, as Dr. Steinberg points out, is something that uh, is the reverse of our perspective. For modern man, it's very easy to think of Christ as a man, but not as God. But for the medieval and Renaissance person, there was no question that Jesus Christ was very God of very God. The problem was his humanity. Did he indeed, God the Son, become flesh? particularly because some of the late medieval heresies took a loose view of Christ's humanity. The Albigensians, for example, were among them. The artists began to stress the sexuality of Christ to say he was very man of very man, so that we must recognize that God the Son indeed became flesh. Now, how far they carried this in their eagerness to portray the Christ child as incarnate, uh, he delineates in considerable detail, including the fact that uh, in some pictures the Christ child is shown with an erection, and the grandmother 
Saint Anne or uh, some uh, prophet or other calling attention to it, saying that, in effect, he was very man of very man, truly incarnate man, although without sin. In the course of his study, he quotes from a collection of late uh, 15th century sermons, sermons from the 1400s. This line, I think, is very choice. I quote, Whereas in earlier times men had to search for the truth and dispute about it, in the Christian era men are to enjoy it, unquote. And the preacher went on to say that preachers are not to waste words persuading believers to belief, but to stir men to gratitude and delight. As a result, the preaching dwelt on the boon conferred by the Incarnation and the Christian's proper response is admiration and praise. Very beautiful, I think. Well, on to something else, this time to a biography by Nancy Lenz Harvey, Thomas Cardinal Wolsey, published by Macmillan in 1980 and now out of print. The interesting thing in this book, which I have mentioned before, but I believe needs stressing, Before the question of the divorce with Queen Catherine ever came up, Henry VIII was moving to do what European monarchs were doing everywhere, to take over control of the church and to confiscate monasteries. The author points out that neither Henry nor Wolsey would brook challenge of any prerogative in matters ecclesiastical or civil. They planned a massive reformation, so-called, of the Church of England, a reorganization of the hierarchy and church management, a close supervision of the monasteries, and closing many, many of them. Moreover, plans were made for such extensive control that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Warham, wrote with righteous indignation to Wolsey, and I quote, I have nothing <clears throat> left for me in my offices to do, but should be as a shadow and image of an archbishop and legate void of authority and jurisdiction, which would be to me a perpetual reproach and to my church a perpetual prejudice." Unquote. We must remember, moreover, that this was being done with the cooperation of the Vatican. Let me quote, to achieve these ends, he, Wolsey, would gain through the years papal permission for the suppression of the monasteries of St. Mary, Farewell, St. Uh, 
Prideswide, Leesray, Pogley, Sandwell, Begum, Tykeford, Thoby, Ravenston, and a host of others. The total of suppressed monasteries eventually reached 58. Unquote. And plans were being made for the inventory of every church in England. In other words, the total control of the church was planned. This was the kind of thing that some of the major monarchs, like the Holy Roman Emperor, Spain, and France, as well as Austria, had been able to gain from the Vatican. This was what Henry VIII was working towards to gain in his own realm. The divorce complicated the matter. Henry VIII was working to place the church under the crown. This was something that the Vatican, now very much controlled by the monarchs, was agreeable to in one case after another and in the case of Henry VIII. The divorce complicated the matter. It did not precipitate the suppression of the monasteries and the control of the church. Then another subject, R. W. Southern, in his study, Western Society and the Church in the Middle Ages, published as a Penguin book, uh, most recently reprinted in 1982, first in 1970, and I believe still in print. A very interesting work. One of the things that uh, I think is interesting is this. The medieval ruler, whether a monarch or a bishop, gave gifts regularly. He accumulated wealth, but he made it a rule to give generously to important people usually, but the poor as well. And the premise was, and I quote because I think this is a very, very interesting point, he who cannot give cannot rule. This fundamental axiom of government can be verified very often in the course of medieval history, and not least in the relations of kings and churches in the 11th century. Kings had been the chief, almost the only large benefactors of the church in earlier centuries. Now they fell behind the local aristocracy in the scale of benefactions, but just because they had less to give they be depended more than ever on their right to appoint bishops and to receive in return presents, hospitality, loyalty, and armed support. What had been a mutually satisfying combination of duties and interests became a tyranny, unquote. Well, <laughs> that same principle still prevails he who cannot give cannot rule. 
And the premise of the modern state is to give welfareism, subsidies, and the like. But the problem with this is it ultimately becomes tyranny, as it did in the Middle Ages. Now on to another very, very interesting point. We tend to view the past as well-organized because <laughs> as we meet it in history books, it is organized. But the fact is, a great deal occurs in uh, the past that doesn't fit neat categories. The Middle Ages was a great era for street preachers. I'm not talking about the order of friars and uh, other orders that went here and there preaching and begging. There were self-appointed preachers would often appear in a public square and preach and make a major uh, impact. Let me quote again from Southern. The Chronicles of the city of Bologna will provide a starting point. Under the year 1204, we read, In this year, Brother Albert of Mantua came to Bologna and preached there for six weeks, and many were converted. This simple annal raises many problems. We don't know anything about Albert of Mantua, nor what he preached, nor to whom, nor what they were converted to. Nevertheless, the event is of some interest. We have an unknown man calling himself brother, though he is, so far as we know, a member of no religious order. He is an itinerant preacher who apparently on his own authority conducts a mission in an Episcopal city, makes a substantial number of converts, and goes on his way to another town. There is no suggestion of heresy, nor of unusual hysteria or disorder, simply of preaching and conversions. Now, until this time, and for hundreds of years previously, within the Christian community, the word conversion simply meant conversion from secular occupations to life in a religious order. But this is clearly not intended here. The conversion is evidently some kind of interior conversion from a formal to an effective religion. This peaceful mission is further amplified by the only other notice we have of Brother Albert's activity. In the year 1207, quote, on 6 May, Brother Albert of Mantua came to uh, Fianza and there made peace in 95 cases of homicide. Then he made peace in Bertinora, then in Siena, and then in Castel Nuovo, then in Forlimpopoli, uh, and finally, in Imola, he made peace in 28 cases of homicide. Here, then, was a man carrying on a private missionary activity of conversion and peace in a turbulent society. It was an activity outside the framework of the organized church. Indeed, the organized church of the Middle Ages had so far scarcely considered the problems of urban society. Then, as uh, Southern goes on to say, we 
must recognize that perhaps there was a great deal more of this kind of activity that went unrecorded. And this preacher, Albert, had his activities recorded just in passing. Now consider uh, the importance of his ministry. In one city, he made peace in 95 cases of homicide, that is, ended a blood feud, and in another, 28 cases of homicide. Very remarkable mission. Well, a great deal more of interest in this book. Perhaps uh, to go from something wonderful to something very different, uh, but which gives an idea of what was going on. One of the problems of the era was that politics uh, were very important in Episcopal elections in many, many countries. In Germany, for example, one bishopric became vacant, and finally the papal legate proposed the name of Henry of Gouldre. This was to please the emperor, because Henry was only 19 years old, already dissolute, and not yet literate. The important thing was that uh, he was the brother of the Count of Gouldre, a nephew of the Duke of Brabant, and a cousin of the Count of Holland. This was the group which Innocent IV needed to provide a core of opposition to the Emperor Frederick II. As a result, the bishop was important in taking a part in the election of his cousin, the Count of Holland, as anti-king of Germany against the Hohenstaufens. So, for 25 years, he was very important in maintaining his position of supporting the anti-Hohenstaufen party in Germany and to play ball with the Vatican. However, he was really a political agent in ecclesiastical dress. Then, finally, he was no longer needed politically. Let me quote, by 1273, his political role was played out. The Hohenstaufen family had been destroyed, and it no longer mattered to the Pope, who was king in Germany. In these circumstances, the behavior of the Bishop of Liege, this Henry, came under papal scrutiny. In January 1273, Gregory X wrote to him about his relations with abbesses and nuns, and especially about his after-dinner boast that in 22 months he had had 14 bastards whom he had provided with ecclesiastical benefices. He was summoned to the Council of Lyon and given the choice between resignation and a canonical trial. He chose the former, resignation, and spent the rest of his life in a career of wild brigandage and license." Unquote. Well, a great deal more of interest in this book.
perhaps a word or two on the lawyer Popes. A very interesting uh, section of this work. The lawyer Popes, uh, which included every notable Pope between 1159 and 1303, were very important because they provided a fundamental concept of order for the society. So, as Southern notes, the fundamental order of medieval, and he says to a large extent of modern society, owes a great debt to these lawyer popes because they brought to their task clarity of mind, firmness of principle, and a tremendous practical wisdom. But he says they had the weaknesses of lawyers at the head of affairs. They increasingly counted on a formal victory as time went on, rather than uh, the substance of things. So, in time, the situation became such that uh, their work, which had been so basic to Western uh, civilization, outlived its usefulness. And there was a need for strong spiritual leaders, and they were not forthcoming, nor were they allowed to develop because the monarchs had had their fill of these lawyer popes, and within six years after the last of them died, the Avignon uh, papacy began, the French control of the papacy. Now on to another item. This from uh, Heinrich Fichtenau, F-I-C-H-T-E-N-A-U. The Carolingian Empire, the Age of Charlemagne. This is an older work published in 1957. And the author does an excellent job of uh, calling attention to the concept of social order that permeated the Carolingian era. And basic to it was the belief that God is the true governor of the whole of creation. And therefore, God must be seen as the governor of every realm within society. This meant not only church and state, but every other realm. This was the goal, but it was difficult because... Christianity was new to these various Germanic tribes. The north of Europe was still pagan, much of Germany and Scandinavia. In fact, the Scandinavians were a couple of centuries or more away from the most elementary uh, Christianization. There were problems in the effort to Christianize the social order. First, because there weren't that many able converts to man churches throughout the Christian areas. 
and Fichtenau comments, It was certainly bad enough that serfs were forced to become priests. But from the church's point of view, it is better than this should be so, than there should, as Boniface had complained, be no priests at all in many areas. It was easier to put up with priests who failed to commune when saying Mass, or who gave offense by spitting, than to be confronted, as people had been in 757, with a problem whether sacraments administered by unbaptized priests were valid or not. In spite of the five reforming synods held by St. Boniface, there were at that time clergy who sacrificed animals to the gods or who lived with five or more concubines simultaneously. Unquote. So there was a very real problem because so many who said they were Christians were not. They were simply looking for a way to perpetuate paganism under the guise of the Christian church. Then another interesting work, John W. Barker, Justinian and the Later Roman Empire, published by the University of Wisconsin Press, 1966, and last reprinted in 77. There's a great deal of interest in this book, somewhat uh, too general because he does attempt to give an overall picture of the later Roman Empire. However, this point is of interest, and I quote, Economic activity was also hampered by social taboos that cut off vital capital. It was unfashionable, if not improper, for the well-born and wealthy to put their money into trade. Land was the only acceptable area for investment. Far back into Roman history can be traced the growth of large landholding at the expense of an increasingly pauperized, dispossessed, and diminished free peasantry, though the process was not constantly uninterrupted. Uh, the taboos against investment likewise worked against commerce so that Rome never had a stable or fully developed middle class in modern terms, and so on, unquote. Well, as uh, Barker points out, this was the destruction of the Western Empire. Constantine by establishing uh, a new capital at Constantinople, an excellent and strategic position for trade, and by establishing a hard currency, gold, gave a thousand years' life to Byzantium. However, even there, the problem tended to be similar in that too many saw land rather than trade as basic, and it should be both land and trade. Ironically, nations have not learned since then, and a great deal of the problem with the British Empire and the failure of England has been due to the same perspective. The aristocracy there tended to view 
land as alone good and trade as beneath their dignity. This kind of blindness, of course, is not uncommon in history. Well, another interesting book, Alan Hardy, The King's Mistresses, uh, published in England in 1980, and I believe out of print. Uh, to me, the uh, interesting point here with regard to George II is how um, having a mistress had become the thing for a monarch to do, so that it was not in good taste for a monarch not to have a mistress. Let me quote from page 78. A strange phenomenon remarked on at the time was that George II should have a mistress at all, since he had married young and never fell out of love with his wife. His marriage to Princess Caroline of Anspach had been a conventionally political one, but turned out to be supremely successful. Caroline was a handsome creature with a magnificent bosom, and as far as her husband was concerned, her physical attractions never palled. In addition, she possessed a clear brain, far superior to his, though he never knew it. For despite her ambitions, she had the good sense to realize that if she were to succeed in life, her husband needed the most tactful management. George was an obstinate little man, subject to towering rages which might end up with his kicking his wig around the room. And like as not as tantrums accompanied by cries of stuff and poo would be caused by the merest trifles, because, as his wife put it, one of his pages had powdered his periwig ill, or because a housemaid had set a chair where it, should not, uh, where it does not use to stand. It was the supreme achievement of Caroline that she managed to govern this stubborn and irascible prince without his ever realizing it, so that when she died he was mournfully to declare, I never yet saw the woman worthy to buckle her shoe. In her success, her physical attractions played their part. Even in middle age, whenever husband and wife met after being separated for any length of time, George, after a perfunctory greeting in front of the court, would rush her off to their private apartments. It was his habit to retire to bed with her every afternoon, and indeed it was from one of these siestas that Sir Robert Walpole called him, half-dressed and in its usual state of irritation, to inform him of his father's death and his own accession as King George II. Why, then, did this uxorious man find it necessary to take a mistress. Primarily, it would seem, because it was the fashion of the day for princes to do so. Lord Hervey, who as vice-chamberlain of the royal household had opportunity to study the court pretty closely, probably hit the nail on the head when he observed, though he was incapable of being attached to any woman but his wife, he seemed to look upon a mistress rather as a necessary appurtenance to his grandeur as a prince than an addition to his pleasure. Horace Walpole agreed. His passions were Germany, the army, and woman. 
both the latter had a mixture of parade about them, unquote. Well, when Dorothy read this book, she kept uh, turning to the picture of Queen Caroline and uh, saying over and over again, how could a man married to so beautiful a woman and one with a reputation for such wisdom and grace ever be involved with any other woman? Well, I agree. But it shows the stupidity of fashion because that's what it was. And to give you an idea of the status of mistresses, uh, skipping over to the time of uh, Edward VII, the son of Victoria, and before he became king, he and his circle, I quote, Before the Prince of Wales came onto the scene, Lord Charles Beresford, a rising star in the Royal Navy, had had an affair uh, with her, Daisy Brooke, that is. Indeed, it was the mess into which Daisy had got herself over Beresford that brought the beauty and the prince together. Lord Charles, to her intense annoyance, had so far re-established relations with his own wife as to make her pregnant. The jealous mistress thereupon penned a most furious demand to her erstwhile lover, calling on him to reject his wife and return to her. The wife intercepted this letter and held on to it for future use. Daisy thereupon appealed to the well-known chivalry of the Prince of Wales, confiding to him her side of the story and begging his help in retrieving the letter. Unquote. <laughs> well, now on to uh, another item briefly. An older work that I read uh, recently was published in 1906. John Spencer Bassett's The Federalist System, 1789 to 1801. The thing that interested me about this book was something I knew as a child, but forgot later in terms of the kind of American history teaching I had before I reached junior high and certainly all the way through the university. All I heard in my later years of schooling was our horrible treatment of the American Indians and how bad we were. What Bassett points out is simply this. Before independence, the French had used the Indians, paid them off to attack the colonists. And one result was the French and Indian War. Beginning with the War of Independence, the British used them. And in the years that followed independence, the British and the Spaniards used the Indians against us. So that there were Indian problems, and there was bitterness, and there was uh, a great deal that uh, was not altogether according to Hoyle, but you must remember there were massacres. 
of Americans simply because these foreign powers were using them against Americans. Now on to something that uh, I've been planning to read for a long, long time and simply have not been able to get around to it. This is from our Christian school reader. It's God's World is the name of it, and perhaps your Christian school uses it. I hope you do. The people who put it out are good friends of Chalcedon, and uh, their work is exceptionally good. If you want to know more about them, write to It's God's World, Box 2330, Asheville, North Carolina, 28802. Let me read this little article from the February 21, 1985 issue by Joanne DeYoung entitled God's Little Undertaker. I think it's a gem. And very frankly, a great many of the articles in almost every issue are little gems. Well, now to the article. Somewhere near you. In a field or nearby woodlot, lives one of the most wonderful insects God has created. Most people call it the sexton beetle. I call it God's little undertaker. Sexton is an old-fashioned word for someone who, among other things, digs graves. That's also what an undertaker does. And that's also what this little beetle does. As darkness falls, this little beetle, less than half an inch long, crawls from his hiding place and flies to a nearby tree. He wiggles his knobby antennae in the breeze and smells the air a quarter of a mile away. A bird lies dead in a field. Already its body is beginning to decay. It gives off just a little odor. We can't smell the bird, but that tiny beetle can. It waves its antennae once more to sense the direction of the odor. It turns its body toward the dead bird and takes to the air. By some God-given sense, it finds the bird. Immediately, the beetle pokes at the dead bird with its front feet. Unformed questions cross its mind. Is the bird really dead? Is it on soft ground? Can it be moved? Satisfied that the bird is dead, the beetle scurries beneath its body. It pokes and prods the ground with its six little feet. The dirt is hard and rocky. Then the beetle walks in a straight line three feet away from the bird. There he finds soft dirt. Quickly it digs just a, a bit into the dirt. It makes just a shallow hole and pushes some dirt aside. Then it runs back to the bird to make sure it is still there. It finds not only the bird, but also a female beetle of its own kind. Silently it accepts the female's help. Together they run three feet back to the shallow hole. They dig furiously and carefully pushing the dirt uh, out of the hole. The two tiny beetles work together and dig a hole deep enough to bury the bird. That job finished, they return to the bird. Somehow they must move it to its grave, three feet away. 
By another God-given instinct, they know exactly what to do. Silently, they burrow under the bird. Then they roll on their backs, put their tiny legs up, and with all their weight push against the bird. The bird moves one quarter of an inch toward the hole. Again the beetles burrow, turn on their backs and push. Again the bird moves slightly. Throughout the night these two tiny beetles work. Again and again they burrow under the bird, roll on their backs and push. Slowly but surely they move the bird toward the hole. Suddenly the bird's foot catches on a plant. The beetles burrow and push, burrow and push, but nothing happens. Again, by a God-given instinct, the beetles climb up on the bird. They walk over it looking for the problem. Finally, they find the plant holding the foot. Carefully, they chew through the plant. The foot is free and the bird can be moved again. Several hours later, the two tiny beetles have moved the dead bird to its shallow grave. Finally, they push it into the hole. Then they claw loose earth over the bird. Little by little, they cover it. When the day breaks, the bird is buried. Two tiny beetles have dug the hole, moved the bird three feet, and pushed dirt over it. But still, their job is not done. The beetles burrow into the shallow grave. They carefully remove the feathers one by one and drag them away from the bird. Then they work the flesh of the dead bird into a soft ball suitable for food. The female beetle then lays a few eggs near the bird's body. The heat from this decaying bird warms the eggs so they will hatch in a few days. While the eggs are warming, both beetles continue to work on the ball of food. They dispose of any insects which appear on it. They remove any extra water which seeps into it, and add water if it begins to dry. As they tend to this ball of food, the beetles also eat and partially digest some of it. After a few days, the eggs hatch into tiny beetle grubs. Immediately, the adult beetles feed their partly digested food to the grubs. The grubs grow fatter and fatter. Now the grubs are able to eat from their ball of food. They can take care of themselves. The work of the adults is done. Both adults climb to the surface and fly away. They have buried a dead bird and have fed their young. Today they will rest. Perhaps tonight they will begin again. In God's world, death is an end and a beginning. The death of a small bird is the beginning of life for a family of beetles. With his little undertaker, God takes care that nothing is wasted. Well, I think that's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. And if your Christian school children or homeschool children are not getting this, they're missing something wonderful. We get it for our Chalcedon Christian school children. And let me tell you, I read it also and enjoy it. Well, our time is really up, so I had better not tackle anything else. I've enjoyed this session with you. 
I always look forward to these easy chairs. God bless you all. Thank you for listening.